welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction Welcome to this TALC talk, which is part of TALC module 10. That module is about using consultation skills in complex conversations. And the chapter we're going to talk about today is skills for talking about domestic abuse. In today's discussion, we're going to talk about the prevalence of abuse, why it's important in healthcare settings, and how these issues may arise in consultations. And to help us think about domestic abuse in more depth, I'm really happy to be joined by Professor Jean Fader, a GP and academic researcher who's done a great deal to highlight issues around domestic abuse. Welcome, Jean. Hello, Avril. Great to have you with us. Now, before we start really going into a deep dive in this, I'd just like to mention that domestic abuse is a delicate matter to talk about sometimes. And skillful conversations will use all the consultation skills of TALC modules one to seven. So it's worth being familiar with those and practising all those skills because it'll really help when patients talk with us about abuse. So Jean, can I start off by asking you to explain what kinds of work you do yourself in connection with domestic abuse? So I I run a research programme around domestic abuse and, and have done that for the last 15 years or so. And the main focus has been how to have an effective and safe healthcare response to our patients who are experiencing abuse, particularly patients in general practice. So all the work has been around finding the evidence for how to do that well. That's helpful. And and can I just ask you to comment on when you talk about general practice, are you kind of in... Do you really mean by that primary care and including some of the other workers who work alongside GPs, nurses, paramedics, all kinds of people these days? Yeah, so when I say general practice, I really don't just mean general practitioners or GPs. I I mean the whole of the the general practice team. I'm careful not to use the word primary care because primary care actually happens outside general practice as well. But what we've developed is a program of training and a referral pathway for the whole team. So the training includes other clinicians, paramedics, nurses. It includes reception staff as well and other admin staff. So that's, I really think it's a, it's a whole team uh, effort that needs to be made here. Okay. Well, I'm going to come back to that point later on because I think it's a very crucial thing when people are thinking about how they respond to conversations about abuse. Um, Before we talk in detail about the issues arising in consultations and clinical conversations, I would like you to explore the background to this subject a bit. So could you tell us a bit about what what abuse means and how prevalent it is? So what we mean by by domestic abuse um, in the UK, because definitions do vary uh, internationally, is abuse that is perpetrated by an adult family member. And that means it's more than just intimate partner violence. So the abuse may, for instance, come from an adult child. It may come from um, a sibling. It may come from an uncle. Um, But the key thing is that it's it's abuse from an adult. So even though there's an overlap with child maltreatment, this is about 
our patients are experiencing uh, some form of violence or coercion, which can be physical, emotional, sexual, even economic control from another adult member of the family or the household. That's a really helpful definition. And I think for most clinicians, it will help them to clarify their thinking, to think that it's not just about being beaten up, but it might be, for example, being deprived of money or, or other resources or, or your freedom, like you mentioned, coercion, your freedom to go out or do certain activities. So uh, how common is this and who gets affected by it? So the, the sad statistic is that one in four women uh, in the UK have experienced some form of, of domestic abuse in their lifetime. It's not just confined to women. Uh, probably one in seven men have also experienced some form of domestic abuse. The difference, though, isn't just in the, the prevalence. The difference is that on the whole, it is uh, women who experience the more severe abuse with the more severe health consequences. We also mustn't forget that abuse in a partnership, intimate partner violence, happens within same-sex relationships as well. So if a man is being abused, it may be, it may be by another man. Okay. And does this affect all social groups and all social classes? Absolutely. Sadly, across the whole uh, social landscape and all classes, all economic groups, there is an economic gradient in that you have a greater risk if you are living in uh, an economically difficult situation, uh, if you have poor housing. So it's not that there isn't a, an economic dimension to this, but the assumption has to be as GPs and as other clinicians within general practice, that any patient can be experiencing uh, domestic abuse. Okay, well, that's quite sobering, really, when you think how many people we're seeing in, in general practice, which is most of the population in, a, in any given year. So about one in four of those might be affected at some point in their lifetime, I think you were saying. So, I, I, Unfortunately, Avril, the statistic is worse than that. Because one of the first pieces of research we did was looking at the prevalence of domestic abuse in East London. We had a dozen practices that we were collecting data from in the treatment room. And unfortunately, um, within general practice, and there are reasons for this, the patients we see a higher proportion of them experiencing domestic abuse than the population as a whole, not least because of the health consequences. And that means that we may actually be talking about um, maybe 35%. And indeed, what we found was that 15% of the patients in the waiting room were experiencing some form of domestic abuse within the last year. So not just prevalence, but actually current abuse. So I'm afraid, and that's not just true for general practice population, it's true for all clinical populations, it's true for um, the patients who we refer to gynecologists, it's true for uh, orthopedic medicine, it's, uh, you know, any clinical population, there's a higher rate of um, domestic abuse than in the population as a whole. That's very sobering as well. And I think it is going to raise some questions that I hope we'll be able to answer both in this talk and in the related talks with Claire Onnells, which is coming up, which is going to be about how we talk about this. So I'd like to be 
turning now to an issue that I think will concern many clinicians who are listening to us talking. Um, as clinicians, we're really primed to explore and think about the health problems people bring to us and to try and ensure proper treatment plans and so on, and that we personalise that. But in many clinicians' minds, and I've heard people say this, domestic abuse doesn't seem to have a kind of defined solution in the way that hypertension or a broken arm or something does. And the perpetrator isn't usually in the room and the clinicians feel we don't have any control over them anyway. And so I think some health professionals feel that if someone's abused, they should just leave. So can you say something about why health professionals should feel it's OK to ask about abuse? There are several reasons why. And I think the, the first reason, if we are genuinely wanting to be patient centred, is that that is actually what survivors of abuse would love to have, would expect from, from their doctors, and not just in, in general practice, but specifically in general practice. And we've done research, um, looking at qualitative research, the voice of survivors, and they're saying, if only I could have told my doctor, because we are one of the group of professionals who are most trusted in society. So there's a strong voice from survivors. They, they would like general practice particularly to be a safe space within which they can disclose. Another compelling reason or complementary reason, if you like, is that there is growing evidence that by doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals asking about abuse and responding that they can actually make a difference in terms of improving outcomes. We don't wave the magic wand, but mind you, we don't wave the magic wand with diabetes either. We don't wave the magic wand with chronic renal failure. We don't, you know, we, interesting enough in general practice, really know how to cope with chronic conditions. And in, in many cases, domestic abuse can be a chronic condition, not just because the patient may want to stay with the abusive adult, abusive partner, let's say, but even if they separate from them, if they have children in common or if they continue to be harassed, the problem remains. So we can put the magic wand away because we don't use it here any more than we use it in other conditions. I think the, I think the real point here is that we don't want to do anything, A, that does harm, First, do no harm. And secondly, we don't want to do anything that's futile because there's enough things to do in general practice where we can make a difference. And my argument here is we can make a difference because there's an evidence, particularly if we can link our patients to the domestic abuse services, which thankfully in the UK do exist, to provide support, we really are enabling an improvement in their, in, in their condition and in their quality of life and indeed in their safety. So we only need to do it, um, or rather we, the reason we must do it is because we can make a difference. And the key, which I think you're gonna talk about with Claire, is how to do it safely and in a way that, that uh, actually does improve outcomes for, for our patients. Thank you. I think you've almost even answered my next question, which is that a lot of health workers are quite anxious about asking about delicate or difficult topics because they often use the sort of term it's like opening a can of worms once those worms start coming out I won't know what to do about them and they have a lot of fears that it'll be their job to kind of fix 
the problem or fix the domestic abuse and they don't really know that do, do you think health workers i think when you were talking about the magic one you were sort of talking about that but how, how should health workers think about this is it a can of worms or do they have the responsibility to fix it as it were so i have a really strong view that our ability to engage with patients and ask them in a compassionate way and to hear a disclosure is dependent on us being in the context of, of other expertise. And I guess the analogy would be, I'll come back to renal failure perhaps. I mean, do we really want to diagnose someone with CKD4 if we didn't have renal physicians who we can refer that patient to for dialysis? I, I don't want to because what what are we doing then? You know, I guess you could say we're witnessing their decline with renal failure, but that's not that's not what not really we're really about, is it? <laughs> not really what we're about. And I, the analogy I think works here because with a um, a domestic abuse con a service context, I know it varies from in different parts of the country. Um, I think where it works best is where the the CCG actually commissions those services to work together with general practice. That the, There is a program called IRIS which does that. And I think with that in place, our role becomes quite um, powerful in, in a way. We don't feel that we're opening the can of worms and have to look at the worms or indeed holding the baby and keeping the baby. We are able to share that with folk who have professional expertise that we don't have. Just like I do not know how to dialyze a patient. I really don't. Um, I don't know how to provide a survivor of domestic abuse who's with me as a patient with the best advice about her safety and her options. It's not, it's not part of my skill set. And yet I, I know a woman, in this case, a woman who, who does. And I, I would really say that that's, for general practice particularly, we get that because we are not experts in anything, frankly, except sticking with our patient, yeah. making diagnosis, supporting them. You know, we have lots of expertise, yeah. including how to ask the question in a compassionate way yeah. and hold a, a difficult answer. Yeah. Because I, I think, as Avril said right at the beginning, many of the basic consultation skills you've already got. In fact, you're really good at it. And all we're saying is bring into the scope of that you know, asking about abuse when it's appropriate. This is not about screening for abuse. It's about asking in in the course of a of a of a relationship of a consultation. Well, that's very very important, and that brings me on to what I wanted to talk to next, which was about the practical issues and the focus in talc is on on consultation skills. So I thought it might be helpful to pick up on that point you've just made about core consultation skills and think about how those different skills might help us to pick up clues about the presence of domestic abuse or think about what to do. The companion talk talk with Claire Ronalds is going to talk about the exact skills we need to explore abuse. But I think there's a lot with our general skills that we could be doing. So I was thinking, let's start with talk module one, which is about beginning consultations effectively. So when we're preparing for a consultation, maybe looking at the records, are there likely to be any clues there that somebody might be subject to abuse at home? Absolutely. And I think, you know, what I would be looking for is, for instance, repeated DNAs, uh, the patients not attending the consultation. So if someone is living in a, um, 
an abusive relationship, their, their access to healthcare may actually be partly blocked as well. They may make an appointment and their partner says, no, you can't go because you have to you know, cook dinner. You know, you, you, they may stop you going. So DNAs, as with, as with children in, in child maltreatment, you know, DNAs are, can be a red flag. The other thing I would, that would make me wonder, I think, is um, repeated consultations for kind of functional disorders or symptoms that don't quite add up in, in, a, in a diagnostic category that, that, that you recognize something's going on and it's being manifested in, in, in a, a range of, of, of symptoms. I mean, you know, everything from you know, insomnia to eating disorder to um, sort of gastrointestinal symptoms that don't quite fit IBS or maybe they do fit irritable bowel syndrome and but but somehow it it doesn't all add up and you know that intuition you've got because I think everybody working in general practice has it you just have get an intuition even from looking at the record that there's something going on and then of course when you're in the consultation with the patient that intuition becomes deepened in a way and I I'm not saying it's all intuition, 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 because there's data here as well, but, but, but you do have to use intuition. And, and there's some presentations which are very straightforward in my mind. You know, any patient who is, just, who is um, presenting with symptoms of anxiety or low mood, or indeed insomnia, chronic pain, you know, and let's face it, I'm beginning to <laughs> occupy lots of the consultations that you're gonna be involved in as GPs. This is very familiar to us. I would ask about, I would ask about abuse. And I know Claire's gonna talk about how to do that. But to me, those are the, I wouldn't call them red flags exactly, but I would say they're the, they're sort of markers that, yeah. that, that make me, that alert me in some ways. I think it's really interesting, some of the things you've raised there. And in particular, I think eating disorders are interesting because I can remember a patient who, um, presented me with concerns about her obesity actually was what was one of the things that came up and in fact it emerged that this had happened in the context of an abusive relationship a very difficult relationship she was a very young woman and she was referred and various things happened and about a year later a complete stranger came into my room but in fact when she spoke it was her and when she'd been able to leave the relationship and get on with her life in a different way she went back to her previous sort of normal weight and she had become almost a, a different person. And that illustrated to me how sometimes things that we get a bit stuck on, like this person's overweight or this person's drinking too much or this person's depressed, we really have to understand the person behind the presentation. So I think it's really interesting to think about those patterns. And I, I, perhaps I'd ask you about this because the other pattern I've noticed sometimes is actually people literally have injuries. They have burns or or they've broken something or something like that that may happen you know far more often than you would well more than once is un, is unusual for most people to have like a, a a treatable physical injury without good reason sort of thing so i think that's another area yeah, to think I, about yeah, absolutely although interestingly that's the minority of the minority of survivors of domestic abuse or people who are experiencing domestic abuse actually have um, physical injuries. Yeah, as a diagnosable yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. But but you're right. And, and of course that you should think, hang on, you know, three burns in four months, hmm, 
Mm. So yeah, yeah. It, I would certainly put that on the list. Although, because there has been this conflation of, of domestic abuse with physical abuse, I tend to put it at the bottom of the list rather than at yeah. the top. Yeah. But yeah. you're right, we mustn't forget yeah. physical abuse. And of course, we mustn't forget sexual abuse because that really, it's the most difficult thing to talk about. Mm. Um, and again, Claire may, may, may want to she say will, something about that. One doesn't have to, one shouldn't interrogate a patient about the different kinds of abuse because that in itself begins to feel quite coercive. So you may not in the first consultation have any inf detailed information and frankly you don't need it to, to, to be supportive and indeed to offer support and referral. Um, that's but also my very, experience talking yeah. about sexual abuse is the most difficult yeah. thing. I think Claire is going to talk about that and I think that's also a reassuring thing for many clinicians that because somebody says, well, you know, things are difficult at home because of this, doesn't mean you have to kind of get chapter and verse and do a huge hour-long debrief or something straight away. And I'd, I'd like to think a little bit about TALC Module 2, which is about the skills of relationship building, which include things like expressing empathy and compassion, building rapport, being able to sit with people's emotions. How do those relationship building skills come into things when people are subject to domestic abuse not even necessarily when they've told you but maybe when they tell you i feel those are that's the core business of what we can really offer to a patient beyond being able to offer referral to, to specialist support and that you know a, a safe space in a relationship with a gp and that's true actually for for survivors who don't want to be referred into specialist services but that place to be able to, to talk about what's happening or just not even to talk about in any detail, but to have a, um, a trusting relationship when the core relationship in their life, if, if this is a partner abuse, is not only not trusting, but it is actually corrosive and dangerous. I think we're, I'm not saying we, we become a proxy for the, for the good partner, if you like, but I, I think it, it is what we have to offer. And it's one of our, it's one of the gifts that, that we have as, as, as GPs and as, as clinicians working within, within general practice. It's become more difficult, as we know, because we're doing more online um, consultations. It's become more difficult because in many practices, it's difficult to see the same GP more than once. So I think when you are dealing with vulnerable patients, not just with patients experiencing abuse, the practice has to take on board the a kind of reformulation of continuity. So it is possible. You don't want to disclose again and again to, to different doctors. And even if it's in the record, you you know, you'd much prefer to see the same the, the same doctor uh, or the, indeed the same nurse or indeed the same paramedic. I mean it's not this is not doctor specific, it, but it is consultation and relationship specific. Yeah. I think that's very important to look at those two aspects of relationships there's the direct interpersonal relationship with an individual clinician which is so important with continuity and building trust over time and maybe helping people over time to work out what they want to do but there's also a, an organizational aspect there isn't there which i think people often underestimate because practices can value continuity they can promote continuity in the way their appointment systems work in the way that their follow-up systems work and even if you're doing telephone 
or video or online consultations, you can promote continuity there. And also you can use those relationships to build relationships and talk about emotions and feelings as well as the facts of the problem. And I think that there's abundant evidence, which we talk about in the TALP modules, that expressing compassion and building those relationships has real measurable effects on outcomes. These are not soft skills. They, they mm. result in better, hard outcomes all around. So I, I want to talk a little bit about gathering information skills at this point, because um, even if you don't ask directly, there might be some hints and clues in the kinds of things people say. What, what kind of things... What kind of clues might we pick up when people are telling us about their problems? Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a, um, I mean, I mean, let's say someone's talking to me about their, um, about being anxious. I'm not, I'm not convinced that I'm then looking for some additional clues. I think for me, it's enough if someone is disclosing anxiety to then ask, I'm not, when I'm not, I'm, I'm keen not to put a message across that you need to build up a whole kind of landscape of clues before you ask. No, that's not necessary. So even though I'm, I'm not in favor of screening, I am in favor of having quite a low threshold for asking. And this, you know, this is a story from early on when it began dawning on me that domestic abuse was going to be an issue in my in my clinical practice. I think I'd been a GP only for four or five years, and um, and I, I I was scared of asking. I was scared of offending my patients by asking about whether everything was all right at home, or whether they were scared of anybody at home, or whether anyone was was being abusive to them at home. I and mean, there are different ways of asking, and you know, Claire will talk about that. Anyway, but I screwed up the courage to, to one patient who was, I think she was presenting with, with sort of anxiety in a kind of general way. And I said, you know, um, are, are you scared of, of anyone at home? And she said, no, not at all. You know, I, I have a lovely husband. He's really, he's really a lovely guy, but, um, but thank you for asking. And I said, why are you thanking me for asking? She said, because I think doctors should be asking about this. And for me, that was like a like road to Damascus. I thought, oh, okay. Actually, our patients are mostly quite tolerant of us. And if we ask a question which has nothing to do with their life, they'll say no. But, but they're not going to be, on the whole, patients are not offended. And if someone is offended, for me, that, that is like a red flag, I think gosh, I wonder why they're offended, because what else is going on here? So I'm, yeah, my, my, what I'm pitching is low threshold for asking and not necessarily looking for a whole bunch of clues. Well, um, you know, I presentation of a functional disorder yeah. or anxiety, that's enough yeah, for me. That, that's a big enough clue, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I think that's really helpful, actually. So let's think about TARP modules four and five, which concern how we explain what we're thinking and how we plan care. And in particular, how we plan care that's personalized to the needs of the individual patient, because that's one of the core generalist skills is not to say, here's the program and the protocol, off you go, but to say, how does this guideline apply to you as an individual? What do you need? What can you cope with? What's feasible? What would you like? All those kinds of things. And I'm wondering if you could comment on the skills that might be helpful here. So if somebody does disclose abuse, when we come to sort of explaining and planning, what kind of 
general approach should clinicians be taking at that point? So again, you know, that sort of those core skills apply perfectly to um, to how you respond to the patient disclosing domestic abuse because it has to be built around what what they want. I mean, there is a safeguarding dimension here, and particularly. If, if there are children involved, then there is that other dimension, which we can talk about if you want. But let's say that there's that you have someone who's not vulnerable in the in the safeguarding sense, so they don't perhaps have learning difficulties, so they have, and they have capacity, and they don't have children who are at risk. Then it has to be absolutely pivoted around what they want and what they're ready to do. And again, you've got those core skills of of checking out. What, what they want to do. And I already referred to you know, a patient who may say, I don't want to be referred anywhere. You thank you very, and I don't want to be asked any more questions. You know, I'll come and see you for another appointment. But so, but what I, what I think is important is to then explain the option of getting expert support. And, and so, so what I say is, you know, we're fortunate that we have a, a service linked to our practice where you can see someone who's a, a domestic abuse support worker or domestic abuse advocate who will look at your immediate safety needs and look at various options you have, which may be around housing, it may be around the law, it may be around you know, what next steps you, you can take, but, but no one is going to, I think this is the key thing, no one's gonna force you to take the next step. This is something that is, that, that is in, your, in your control. And that's how, that's how I talk about it because uh, it's a, um, I mean, it links, I'm not, I'm not saying I say exactly that when I've made a diagnosis of diabetes or raised blood pressure, but certainly around say that whether to take a statin or not, I do try to talk about, do you know what? You have a one in three risk of a heart attack or a stroke in the next 10 years. If you take this drug, we can reduce that by about a third. But it's your decision. There's no, I do say there's no right or wrong here because you may not want to take a tablet every morning or every, every evening if it's starting. So, you know, I do think this, there's a read across with how we, we try to have patient-centered, like co-production type of relationships with our patients. And I think it's the same for domestic abuse. Yeah, it's very much about having a dialogue, isn't it? And having a, you know, what, what, what are you thinking now? What is your response to this? What are you concerned about? And in a way, what, what we always say in talk is the whole concept of talking about the patient's perspective, the patient's ideas, worries, their expectations, doesn't stop when you've gathered some information. That process goes on when you're thinking about possible plans, you know, what, what are their responses to your suggestions? What do they know about their options? Do any of those options appeal to them or are they not interested in any of them? Uh, because that, again, will build that trust and that relationship, which might mean in a week or a month or a year, they come back and say, oh, I'm now ready to do something different. You mentioned such a such thing last time. Well, tell me a bit more about that, for example. Avril, that's beautiful. I think you put that really beautifully in it. And what I would say about that is that you're you're incarnating a kind of non-coercive relationship with the patient. So you're somehow, you know, because the last thing we want to do is, as clinicians is to replicate some of the coercive stuff that this person is experiencing. And the way you've expressed that dialogue is, I would say, is like more beautifully non-coercive and mm. and and almost well collaborative. Mm. I think the benefits of collaborating to produce a care plan that works for that individual really can hardly be 
be overestimated. And in this kind of delicate situation, building that relationship and saying, I'm not here to force you, but I'm here to be here when you need me, as it were, and the way you need me might be different at different times. I mean, sometimes people need you to look at a wart and other times people need you to say it's probably a heart attack. But we we kind of span that whole uh, range, don't we? So so that's interesting. I'd, I'd like you to say something which you mentioned before when you talked about the support that clinicians need in this situation, about knowing about the services that are available. Um could you say something about the kinds of services that are around and how, how they work and what kinds of things people might be looking to familiarise themselves with? So most of the, what we'd call the domestic abuse sector, um, is populated by local agencies. They're usually part of the Women's Aid Federation in, in the UK. And that's true in Wales and in, in Scotland as well as England. Um, they, if they have been commissioned to have a particular connection to a CCG, a kind of area of, of practices, then it would be part of what's called the IRIS program. And in about 15, 15 to 20%, it's maybe getting up to 20% of, of practices in, in England and Wales do have that. And, and of course, if if your practice isn't a CCG that is commissioned that, by now you should know about this because there should have been training in your practice. You may need to reach out to your practice manager. Can I ask you to tell me what IRIS means? What does that stand for? It's probably very familiar to you, but perhaps not to all our listeners. Well, well, well IRIS is, is, is a programme, which, you know, you know, and I've now actually, believe it or not, forgotten the acronym to improve something safety. Something like identification. Referral. And referral to improve safety. There you go. God, it's been about 15 years that someone's asked me what the acronym stands for. <laughs> I was Ident- like a killer question, Jean. It's <laughs> a wonderful question. Identification referral to improve safety. And it is a now nationally, well, it's, it's a locally commissionable programme. If you're in a practice, one of the 80% of areas that don't have the IRIS program, then you what the practice needs to do, I don't think every clinician should do this because it's such a, you know, <laughs> it's not a good use of time. You should get your practice manager or your safeguarding lead to, to uh, find out if they haven't already what your local domestic abuse service is. If possible, have a way of of referring directly. If not, you'll need to signpost your your patient to that service. The reason we got I got into this area of research was partly because signposting doesn't work very well, and that referral actually is a much more powerful way for a patient to to, to get the support they need. But I do think it's worth you knowing what what your local service is if if you're not an Irish practice. Um, there, I mean, there are, there's also other services which sometimes can provide support and have a particular expertise around domestic abuse, um, for instance, victim support, refuge, they they tend to be more, well, the, the, the community-based services are usually the Women's Aid Federation services. And that is part of, I mean, just like Ava was saying, some of these things are organizational. At an organizational level, your practice should know what the local service is and make sure that all the clinicians know that. And actually, there are services of some kinds everywhere in the UK. And as you say, it's important to know what's available locally and to have that information easily accessible within your clinical setting. And the safeguarding leads would certainly be the people who Mm. would be able to 
um, include that and perhaps help people at induction and those kind of things to know where to look for that kind of information. And certainly people's mentors, trainers, supervisors and so on should have that information available, shouldn't they? Um, We've talked already about how not everybody wants a referral, not everybody wants social services or other services to get involved. And I, I appreciate that. But there are times when perhaps there are other people or children involved where there might be hazards that go beyond that individual person. Are there some situations where a, a referral could happen perhaps without that person being that keen on the idea? I think that lands us directly into the safeguarding space, really. And we all know, I think as part of our safeguarding training, that um, there may be occasions where we have to override the wishes of, of the patient, particularly if they're children or involved or if, or if they're a vulnerable adult. Um, and, and as we know from our safeguarding training, when, when, when starts that conversation with trying to seek consent about referral, and mostly one can get that, there is a fear in the area of domestic abuse of the, the non-abusive parent feeling that, um, that their, their, their children might be taken away, that, that there might be a judgment that this is an unsafe household, which very occasionally it is. So there is a real reluctance to get social services involved. Um, and that may mean you have to override that if you have if you have a serious concern. Now, for me, I mean, your safeguarding lead is the go-to person to discuss that with. You don't have to make that decision in that first consultation where you have a disclosure. If you have a link through, say, IRIS to a domestic abuse service, then they will also look at it through a kind of safeguarding lens as well and can make a direct referral to social services. So again, it's not, you're not holding the baby. It's not always exclusively on your plate. Um, and particularly if, if well, I assume you'd have a safeguarding lead in the practice. Um, it's, it is tricky. It's part of, but of course, safeguarding is, 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 is a tricky area. But the fact is that um, there are times when you have to override the wishes of the patients. My own experience is that it, it's pretty rare. It is actually pretty rare. The other dilemma here, which those of you who are in practice will unfortunately recognize, is that the thresholds now within children's services and social care sometimes are so high that you will make a referral because you are concerned about a family and the impact on the children. And there's no doubt that being a child in a household where there's domestic abuse is a form of child maltreatment. There's lots of evidence on the long-term impact of that. So there you are, you've decided you are gonna refer either with or without the, the consent of the non-abusive parent. And children's services bounces it back to you and say they don't reach the threshold, which I've, that's happened to me. And I find that really dispiriting, but it, you know, it's partly the system we're in and the children's services at the moment are, are somewhat overwhelmed. And that, that's a reality within, within, you know, across the UK. Yes. And they're overwhelmed for a number of reasons, aren't they? I think people's awareness is greater, but also they've been repeatedly cut in their funding and that kind of thing. And they find it difficult to get people to work in these quite stressful areas. And I think coming back to that, if those kind of referrals are coming back, this is where your own team is so important, isn't it? Where the, whether it's working with your safeguarding lead, discussing with your primary health care team or your colleagues to find ways in which you might uh, hold that risk in a, in a different way or, or move in different ways or involve different local services, 
for example, uh, I'm just thinking about our, my own local area here, where, say, for different kinds of women's groups, there are there are women's groups which are per perhaps promoting speaking English or that might be promoting well-being through various children-related activities. And it may be that just being involved in some other supportive activity can be a way of helping people to keep going for a while, even if social services aren't going to respond. So there are diff you have to think a bit creatively sometimes with, you, with the other members of your team. I, I think that's a really important point. Well, two important points. Now, one is that this is a team issue. You do not have to hold this again on your own because this is traumatic. And, and if we're thinking about trauma-informed care, you do need to share this with the team. And then those other resources, maybe you have a social prescriber in your, in your practice, maybe. But again, it's a practice issue of understanding what the local landscape and support looks like that you can refer to. So it's, I think that's, that point is, is, is really, really well made. Um, and I think you know, this does fall into the heading of trauma-informed care. There's no doubt that there's vicarious trauma here, potentially, for you as a, as a, as a clinician, because you may have your own experience of abuse or from a family member or a friend, and that therefore, you know, holding this just in yourself is, is not a good idea. And I think trying to share it with the team is, is, is crucial. And again, not just for the patient but but for you i was going to raise that issue because i think um the well-being of clinicians is has been um stretched and pressed a great deal in the last few years um, but particularly this kind of situation it can be very painful for all kinds of reasons to hear about abuse particularly if you can empathize or if you understand what's happening and first of all you're talking about you know discussion with team meetings and colleagues how, how do you think, can, can, how, how can people raise awareness of their own needs in this, this area? Because I think one of the things is people do tend to feel they've got to deal with everything themselves, that, um, that it's somehow weak to say, oh my God, I had this really upsetting conversation with this person this afternoon, that sort of thing. Well, what kind of ways in which clinicians work together do you think are most helpful? I mean, to me, this is a, a generic question because domestic abuse isn't the only um, thing that is disclosed by patients which make us feel uncomfortable or is triggering in some way. So I think this is about how practices can support clinicians in, in a more, as I say, in, in a more structured, generic way. I mean, the classical answer is the Ballant group. Michael Ballant was a um, Hungarian psychoanalyst who worked with GPs around difficult consultations or indeed any consultations and I think newly qualified GPs you know do do have ballot groups and I, I I'm a I'm a big fan I had one when I was a uh, we didn't call them registrars when I was a trainee uh, but I think we have to bring back in now uh, other ways of, of supporting all, all clinicians not, not not just GPs because we are working in 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 difficult times and you know i think that i mean some practices not my own at the moment but some practices have well-being type activities where not necessarily to talk about the stuff that's traumatic but to do other things together like like tai chi and um and i actually am a believer i think that, that those things may be helpful um the other thing that i think is crucial within a practice is to 
have at least one confidant, <laughs> one, I wouldn't necessarily call them a mentor, but a, a go-to other clinician, it would usually be who you can talk about, about difficult stuff with. And that's different from doing it in a team meeting because it, 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 it is, of course, more strictly confidential. Yeah. So those are, none of these are, um, needless to say, perfect solutions. But I think, as Avril says, you know, we, we've, well, she didn't say this, but she implied it, we've historically neglected the, the needs, the health needs mm. and the well-being needs of clinicians, particularly in general practice. Mm. So I, I think we, we've, got, we've got to face that now. And I think every clinician can both benefit from that, but also contribute to that as well by being a confidant to someone else, by supporting well-being activities in the practice, by being willing to raise dis difficult issues in team meetings and so on. So all, all that's really helpful. Well, thank you very, very much, Professor Fader. And I just want to remind everybody that there's a related podcast in Module 10 about domestic abuse with Dr. Claire Ronalds where she covers the specific skills of how to ask about domestic abuse and how best to respond to it if abuse is disclosed. So thank you very much for your contribution. It's been really fascinating. And thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.